When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It. On this show, we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. The way we get our news is always changing, and lately it seems to be changing more rapidly than ever before. As one of the panelists on CNBC's Fast Money, I know people are tuning in daily to watch the show on TV, but they're increasingly watching highlights on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Some people discredit Gen Z and millennials for not keeping up with the news, but the reality is a whopping 79% still consume the news daily, and about 91% are getting their information on social media. One of the first outlets to make news bite-sized, fun, and informative was The Skim, a newsletter that launched in 2012 and was developed by two former roommates, Danielle Weisberg and Carly Zakin. The Daily Skim publishes at 6 a.m. every weekday, and their goal has always been to make the news punchy, easily digestible, and fun to read. Today, the Skim ecosystem includes six newsletters, the podcast 9 to 5-ish, and the Skim mobile app. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by co-founder and co-CEO, Danielle Weisberg. Danielle has been featured on a number of prominent lists, including the Forbes 30 Under 30 in Media, Vanity Fair's The Next Establishment, Fortune's 40 Under 40, Variety's Power of Women, and she's also been recognized by Goldman Sachs Builders and Innovators Summit as one of 100 Most Intriguing Entrepreneurs. Danielle, thank you so much for joining me. Karen, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I want to start at the beginning, where we always start. How did this happen? I know it's a a well-told story, but some of our listeners might not know how this came to be. I love telling it because it still feels like an out-of-body experience. Carly and I actually met while studying abroad in college. We went to different schools, met in Italy, had a lot of fun, did not talk about what we wanted to be when we grew up because that seemed far away. And then ultimately we graduated 
real world kicked in. And we both grew up, honestly, as news junkies. Carly, I know, wanted to be Katie Couric, would watch the Today Show every morning. I loved political news. I was like a politics junkie. And that took us into where we wanted our careers to go. So when I graduated, I went to work for the DC Bureau of NBC News, which was the best education I could ever have have asked for. I absolutely loved it. Carly was working in different areas of NBC News and Peacock Productions and CNBC as well. And we kind of crisscrossed and eventually reconnected and became really good friends and roommates at the exact same stage in life, meaning we were very, I would say, equally concerned and ambitious that we wanted to make an impact. We loved working in media. We loved working in news. And we loved storytelling. And we knew we wanted to do that for a living. What we couldn't quite figure out was how do you make a living doing that long term? And especially we graduated college in 2008. We were super cheap labor at a time when there were a lot of layoffs in newsrooms. And that meant we got to experience a lot of things right out of school. And then you gain more experience. And what we saw working in a big organization was that you're stuck a little bit. You end up waiting for one job to maybe open. And that's really where we were in our careers, being roommates coming home to each other every single night. We kind of had this thing that we would call Project TBD for a while. And people always ask, was there an aha moment? And there was not one singular aha moment. It was a collection of moments where we found ourselves more and more in this position of acting kind of like as a news concierge for our friends, which is actually in the beginning how we thought about maybe what we were creating. Again, Project TBD, where we would be like, oh, we have these really, really amazing, educated, leading, smart friends who happen to be women who are not following what's going on in the world as the same way we are. And we started to look at that. So you're thinking we can curate for them. We were thinking, honestly, that's that's putting too much, uh, I think, it, credit into it. We were thinking we love this. We're doing it naturally for our friends and family. And the more that we saw, we started to piece some things together. It was very weird that we were paid to read the news all day long and paid to be on top of it. And so we saw our friends in finance, in marketing, in education, in health, all shared the same thing. They knew everything that was going on in their industries. They knew everything that was going to affect their professional day-to-day. But there was a real lack of time and also probably along with that desire to put time into understanding things outside of it. And also there was a question of how do you get your news? Who do you trust? What interests you? And that's where it, it came together. So in 2012, Carly and I saved up like $2,000 each. And we knew that it was probably rent for a very small amount of time. And that's truly all that we had. We left NBC News. It was the scariest moment I think I've ever had in my career was walking in and quitting. I never thought that's what I would do there. And we jumped into it. And 11 years later, we are still a team growing this company that we started from our living room couch. It's kind of amazing. So there was this kind of, are we doing this? I guess we're really doing this. And then you had to go in and actually say, all right, I'm leaving. Yeah. 
I remember that moment. I cried. (laughs) And I remember my boss was like, I think you're quitting, but I can't really understand you. When you walked out of the office, did people think, oh, my God, she just got fired. She's crying. I I think that people knew how much I loved it. So I think there was a real shock. We should kind of coin the term like we're reluctant entrepreneurs. I don't think anyone would describe either of us as being particularly risky at all in any aspect of our lives. And I think a lot of times it almost feels like, oh, we did it. We took the risk. We quit our jobs. We started the company. And we have to remind ourselves that it's really a philosophy that has brought a lot of great things into our lives and lean into it. But it was much more we felt like it was the only option that at some period of time, like we realized that our lives were not going to get any less complicated. We did not have a fallback plan, but we also knew we had to pay for ourselves. We had to figure out a way to pay rent and, and utilities. We knew we could get side jobs. I don't know why I thought this was going to be a good idea, but like I was like, oh, I'll just learn to be a DJ. And I I've waitressed before. That probably should have been the more reasonable thing. And we quit in the summer of an election year. So we knew that, you know, if this didn't work, we could get freelance opportunities. But it seemed like there was more of a risk in not doing it to our futures. And I think it felt like the safer bet was to bet on ourselves. Mm -hmm. So now looking back, that seems, oh, that was so clear. Of course, we should have done that. But I'm sure it was very daunting at the time. So now you decide, okay, we're doing it. And then is there this, oh, my God, what did we get ourselves into? Yes, there are two types of I'm sure there's way more than two types of entrepreneurs out there. But I will say what I think we represented were the types of entrepreneurs were one, there was two of us. So we jumped into this, pushed each other off of the ledge I don't think either one of us would have jumped. So it was kind of like we're going to push each other at the same time. And because of that, you are accountable to yourself and you're also accountable to someone else who I happen to live with. So if you're slacking off, if you're not just as exhausted as I am, like what's going on? And we worked round the clock. I think partly that came from being trained in a news environment that you get really used to that and the expectations and the lifestyle. What it took us a while to do was I remember going home to Chicago for the holidays. So we started in July, so it would have been December. And my mom was like, you look like I love you, but you look awful. (laughs) And It's only a mom can say. I'm so proud of you, but you do not look healthy. And we were not. And sometimes I think that's what it took for us to launch, you know, a news company that was doing daily news from our couch. And it was very rough. And from there, actually, we became very, very obsessively regimented and scheduled with this is the time block in our day where we talk about fundraising. This is the type of block of our day where we talk about our content approach. And then this is the time block that we actually write. And here's what that process looks like. Okay, so things start to really take off and it's working. And then you get to a period, all right, well, we really need to raise some serious capital. Mm -hmm. And so much has been said about women pitching VCs and having a very hard time. 
But you went out there. Was it the first time you went out there where you you actually got a lot of traction? It was awful. And it still is. And I think that I'm so happy now to be part of of this wave of female founders that got funded. But when you look at that data, it is still a very small amount that go on to have Series C or growth equity or run public companies. And so, you know, I think we've felt it every step of the way as we've grown with the statistics. Yes, we got funded our seed round. That was incredibly difficult. Then the next round, still incredibly difficult. Then, you know, it was a little easier. And then it got very difficult again. And now I think we're part of a a growing cohort of women who have run companies who now are like, you know, I've done it. I'm experienced. I know that this is more difficult than it should be because I know the statistics. And I'm so happy to have seen change that women and people of color are getting funded at much better rates than they were a decade ago. But we need to make sure that we are seeing that change in in all aspects of the funding journey. And what that meant for us was I think we had like 100 names on a spreadsheet that were in red. And finally, red meaning you got a pass from them. No, they passed. passed. Yeah, they passed. They passed. They passed. They passed. And we actually had talked to this fund, Homebrew Ventures, in San Francisco. They had not done any New York investments yet. They were a co-founded team, co-CEOs, Satya and, and Hunter, who we had talked to and didn't really think they were interested. So we marked them as red. And... One of our company's advisors was like, I heard they were interested. And we were like, no, I don't think so. They didn't really ask for a follow-up or anything. And they were like, well, did you make sure that that was a no? We're like, oh, actually, you know, let's go back. And we ended up spending the last of our savings on a round trip, meaning we flew out that morning to San Francisco from New York, and we took the red eye back and wrote the copy for the next day on the red eye back. And in the interview with them, part of the conversation in the final round was like, can you order for each other? And Satya and Hunter knew each other so well that they could say, like, this is the allergy, this is the aversion, this is what he's eating today. And they funded us and were a huge part of getting us on the track to future investments. So do you think without them, there's this sort of once some VCs, uh, oh, so-and-so's in it or Google mm-hmm. Ventures in it, then, you know, that's a good housekeeping seal. We can get, we can be involved. Totally, totally. And I think that's why it's so important that the funding statistics continue to change because we've seen the change in the early rounds and we need to make sure that that kind of stamp of approval continues into further options for funding and and not just venture, whether it's private equity, whether it is the path to going public, all of these things need to make sure that, and it makes sense, right? Like when you're talking about taking a bet on someone and even if they built a company before, it's still a bet, you want to know that other people you trust have looked at it and there is a network effect. And so let's make sure that we are are thinking about how to widen that. So this co-CEO relationship you have, it sounds like Homebrew has one, but it sounds like, I mean, it's it's very unusual. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of sort of cautionary tales about having a co-CEO. But you guys have done it for a while now. We have. Who's in charge of what? Who's the extrovert? Yeah. Who's the introvert? What? How do you guys work together? 
Well, we've done it for 11 years, which is longer than either one of us has been married. So we've we've been committed to each other for a very long time. We like to joke that like our first headshots were like engagement photos. So we had to like <laughs> stare into each other's eyes. And we set out with wanting the exact same things. And I think starting from a very level playing field. And that means we put the same amount of money in, which was basically all the money that we had. And so it didn't matter what the amount was. It represented basically just being all in, that we had to make this work. There there was no fallback plan. We both adore our families. We're really, really close with our families, but they were not able to financially support us. So Carly's family, I remember... Her parents had us over because she's from New York and they made us dinner and then they helped her dad helped us try to figure out our first budget on Excel. My mom would go wear her skim T-shirt and walk around Chicago and pass out flyers. And that was really valuable, but it also represented this is a similarity. We want the same things out of this. And I think at the time, what we wanted was to be able to make a different type of career for ourselves and with that different, you know, financial opportunities. And because of that, we felt very strongly that we went into this as journalists with a knack, like kind of a just a natural kind of passion and talent for brand building and communications. In the beginning years, I think what we both developed was a real love of strategy and and business and core business skills. What that means is we both look really similar on paper. I think what is different is, you know, we're not the same person. We have very different backgrounds when it comes to how we grew up. We have very different communication styles. And so we represented very different types of leadership to our team. And we did a lot of executive coaching. We've done a lot of feedback sessions internally, externally to really work on that. And one of the things that we've determined between the two of us was just 11 years in, we may be able to do this job without the other one, but we don't want to. That this is something we started together. This is something we're going to finish together. And we have developed, I think, a really unique partnership. And it's something I'm really proud of. And no, you don't see a lot of co-founders who make it. You also really don't see a lot of women out there that are, are doing the co-CEO thing. This, is, this worked for us. It's probably not going to work for everyone, right? You really have to be on the same page. You really have to be open to communication and to feedback. I don't think that I would ever recommend starting a business with your roommate unless, you know, you have all of these discussions about what you want out of the business first. But it has worked for us. And it's something that I think showing it as an alternative, I think especially when there's an epidemic of loneliness in our country, and especially in post-pandemic, and especially with entrepreneurs. There is so much anxiety and so much depression. I think that we have always felt that. And having someone to talk to who understands it inside and out has been invaluable. It's kind of amazing that you've made it through so many hurdles of starting a company, starting it together, starting with a tiny amount of money. And yet, here you are. So I want to take a quick break and come back and talk about content. 
Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. And we're back with Danielle Weisberg, co-founder and co-CEO of The Skip. So... You have said you are sort of teaching adulting was kind of how some of your content started, aside from the news, which you compiled for your readers. But there was another part of the business as well. So how did you sort of decide to expand that and take on some of these other projects like the book? Yeah. So I think the idea behind the skim was making it easier to live smarter. And that has evolved in how we've said it over the years, but that really is what we wanted to do. And when we started, we focused on uh, misinformation in terms of daily news and how could we just make sure that news was a part of a daily routine, because I think that builds confidence. And we wanted that to be able to have a carryover effect into women making decisions throughout their days. And then we grew up. We grew up with our audience. Our audience grew up and our brand was able to build authentic inroads with this group who would say, we want more and we want to hear about career. We want to hear about money. And these things really got us thinking about being a mission-driven company is just part of our DNA. When we say we want to make it easier to live smarter, that inherently means thinking about what this audience needs and anticipating that and giving it to her. So it was a natural evolution to think about the hallmarks of our company, understanding what she's up against, understanding where she is in her life, and then making sure we're anticipating what she needs to know to confidently make the choices that are right for her and her family. And that may have started with and still does with someone that's graduating college and continues now to our audience that is kind of like in the throes of managing a family that 
probably includes kids and parents. We're very much part of the sandwich generation. We're thinking about both how do we support up and how do we support down? And what gets lost in that a lot of times is ourselves and living through a pandemic even more so. And we want to make sure that we are making it easier to live smarter. And that means much more today. It's it's much more confusing and conflicting today than it was, I think, 10 years ago. So while your audience is growing, you, of course, are growing as well. And you have two kids. I do. And so you also had to try to figure out how do I manage this and help other people manage at the same time? A big part of it has led to realizing what helps me. So how did I do it? Every single day is a day where I'm like, oh, check mark. I did it. I did it today. And it rarely if ever, looks like how people, I think, think it would. And that's something that Carly and I try to be really transparent about, is that we've struggled mentally, we've struggled, you know, emotionally, there have been real, real ups and downs to this. And and so as, as important as it is to, like, share a really great photo that we took in some cool place meeting a celebrity, it's as important to share that the trip that went into that meant we were jet lagged and was eating takeout on the road, missing our family, that I was trying to like FaceTime my baby, all of these different things. And that's something that's really important to us and has gone into thinking about ways that the brand can flex into civic engagement. So I think the best outcome there was in thinking through our Show Us Your Leave campaign. So we started that. Just so people know that this was a campaign to get companies to be transparent with what their maternity leave policy is. Yes, exactly. And the reason why I say that in answer to your question is because both of my kids are COVID babies. The first one was kind of like peak COVID. And I was at home, obviously. And the second one was like Omicron. What was the second one was there was not a vaccine yet available for them. So that was a a different part of it. But I was six weeks pregnant when the world kind of went into lockdown. And so with my first, I really felt like so much anxiety. And one thing that I, I felt like in that moment I was particularly grateful for was being part of a company that had a very generous leave policy. So we had 18 weeks for primary and secondary caregivers. And we, I remember I was on the phone with Carly and trying to finish a call with her while looking after my probably like four-month-old at the time or three-month-old. I think I was either on leave or just come back. And he was drawing on the floor. I don't know, like something that I was very overwhelmed by. And we would both got an alert that basically there was not going to be really any significant federal funding for paid family leave in Build Back Better. And we kind of just like really took a moment to be like, wow, 
This is insane. There needs to be so much more support to get women back into the workplace, especially given what we've just gone through. There needs to be so much support for families to stay in the workplace because of what this recovery is going to need. And we had just seen with that decision that this wasn't something that a Democrat was going to fix. It wasn't something that a Republican was going to fix. So it was an issue that we felt like both sides had kind of failed. And because of that and our role as both employers and as someone who had just taken advantage of our company's policy, I felt it was a good time to talk about it. I used my experience of having a family in a specific moment in time to really think about how other women might experience that. And Carly was like, let's put it in, you know, family leave is a privilege, not a perk or something like that. And all of a sudden, hashtag show us your leave. And it was a picture of me trying to like chase after my little one in that moment. And that just spurred thousands of women DMing us, telling us their stories about the lack of leave. And I knew it was bad, but we didn't know it was that bad. I think the pictures of women in delivery gowns working on their laptops because they needed to log a certain amount of hours before they could qualify for leave of, you know, stories of them going back to work while like their bodies were still very much healing. And it just it seemed ridiculous. So in that moment, we started this very grassroots journey that the skim has taken on and grown and and become something that now is a mark of company transparency. We've gotten over 700 companies to make their leave policies transparent on our database. And so that you don't have to have that awkward conversation when you're thinking about it in your workplace. We give materials to coach on how to have those conversations with your HR department or your manager when you're not seeing the policies that you want to see. And that work really set the groundwork for our latest advocacy in that area, which is show us your caregiving, show us your child care. And that's another thing that it's broken. Government doesn't look like it's going to fix it for us. It's not working for caregivers who are largely women. And it's not working for women in the workplace because it's very hard to afford. And it's not working for companies because there's not a scalable solution. And we want to be part of the conversation. And hopefully that conversation can lead to a solution. Is there any company or are there companies that you feel like, all right, they do it right? I can tell you two companies that we've certainly teamed up with in this is Moms First, which is all about the data around how do you support working families from a very much an advocacy and political point of view. And we also at The Skim work with Vivi, which seeks to make childcare more affordable and accessible through working with companies, people teams, and also is a way that The Skim has been able to offer backup care. So the the whole journey you've been on from your couch to starting this to ending up with millions of subscribers, raising venture capital and then taking on some big I know get out the vote was one of your yes. also one of your important campaigns. I don't know if that's the right word. So you've had an extraordinary ride. What's next? More. Okay, that's a great answer. Yeah, more. You know, 11 years ago, we set out to do something and we did it. And every year, we have been so grateful that the ability of our brand to make 
more impact has grown as well. We want to continue to make it easier to live smarter for an audience that feels like they're being pulled in all different directions. And so that means more to us today than it did 11 years ago. And we feel both a responsibility and a total privilege to get to do that for something that that we're part of and for a company that we love. So along the way, though, at some point, you must have thought, oh, that was a bad decision. I wish I could do that again. What was that? And what did, what did you learn from that? Oh, I always think those mistakes are about how I showed up as a manager and as a leader. I think Hiring decisions, firing decisions, the way that I gave feedback. Carly and I give our team an immense amount of credit for being very patient, especially the first, you know, five or six people we had on our team and and telling us like, hey, we need to get together and build some culture or, hey, I signed up at a startup because I thought I'd have room to run and tell me what my career options are. Like, what does that look like here? And then it's, oh, yeah, well, we probably should build that in and and make that more formalized. And what is being in a feedback culture really need? And so I think all of that, that is, is the biggest learning curve for me, and it continues to be. And it's something that I look at people sometimes, and they could be in their, their first role where they manage, and they just have it naturally. And I think that for me, it's certainly a muscle that I continue to work on each day. And what was something where you thought, I really got that right? Well, I picked a great business partner. A very <laughs> gracious answer. A gracious answer. All right. We're going to take a quick break and come back with the lightning round. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? (laughs) You get the goofiest game in history, Queen's Podcast. Hi, I'm Nathan. And I'm Katie. And we're the hosts of Queen's Podcast. Join us while we spill the tea on women from history. We get into all kinds of stories here, like biographies of lesser known figures. For instance, Saida Haltura, powerful pirate queen. To the stories you might already know, like Marie Antoinette or Cleopatra, but with a fun twist. Each queen is paired with a cocktail that'll totally get you in the mood to hear fun, juicy, and dramatic stories from history. Because history is so much more than just dudes on a battlefield, and we believe that the female perspective and roles are just as deserving of their time in the spotlight. Right. So come get to know these queens. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. And we're back with our lightning round. Okay, so you might know this best as would you rather. And the only challenge, you can't think about the answer. You just have to, the first thing that pops into your head. There's no wrong answer. Okay, so here we go. Would you rather TikTok or Instagram? 
Instagram. Newspaper or magazine, Kindle or hardback book? Either of those choices. Ooh, Kindle. But I want to explain my answer. Okay. <laughs> Newspapers are for vacation. Magazines used to be for airplanes, but not so much. Mm -hmm. Hardcover is my favorite, but mm -hmm. Kindle because I read a book a week. So mm -hmm. it's the most accessible. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Okay. Would you rather be courtside at a game or a VIP at a concert? Courtside. Which game? Basketball. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Would you rather be the last one awake or the first one up? I would rather be the first one up, but that never happens. <laughs> I am always the last one awake. Okay. Chicago or New York City? Chicago. Beach or mountains? Beach. Okay. Only wear black for the rest of your life or lime green for the rest black. of your life? Drive or be driven? Oh, drive. But that is new for me. Really? Yeah. I, Carly and I are both horrible drivers. <laughs> but during the pandemic, we were forced to practice or just be at home with family. <laughs> so are you saying you'd rather drive if it's you and Carly together? Or no. Yeah, okay. I used to say like being driven was my only choice. I uh -huh. couldn't drive. And now I would rather drive. Okay. Would you rather be moved or laugh uncontrollably? Laugh. Fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Okay. What are you reading right now? Britney Spears's book. Really? Is it good? Yes. I, I stayed up last night. I read half of it. I am a longtime fan, and so it's very interesting. All right. The last one. What is the best investment you've ever made and the worst investment? And it's sort of a very broad definition of investment. It could be a class you took or a conversation, anything. I think the most I think about investments much more is time and energy spent. So I think the best investment I've ever made has been in my family. And the worst investment I've ever made has been, I used to be someone that really, really just did not forgive. And what that meant is I like held so much in. And I think that that was one huge thing that I worked on because it was not an investment that yields any good return. That is a unique and fantastic answer, actually. I thought you were going to say the $2,000. Oh, that's <laughs> probably a better answer. That's a really good, you know, that's a great <laughs> that's, investment. Next time, next okay. time, that'll be my answer. Next time. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending the time with me. I really appreciate it. And I just wish you continued success. And it's so great to see this arc of an extraordinary thing that you've built. So congratulations to both of you. Thank you so much, Karen. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. Thank you so much to Danielle Weisberg for sharing how she's built the skim with her co-CEO Carly and where they're going after 11 years. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward. <laughs>